1: Welcome again, everyone, to the New Books Network, Native American Studies channel. This is Ryan Tripp, your host. We're here today with Professor Colin Calloway, 1943 Sean Kimball Professor of History, as well as Professor of Native American Studies at Dartmouth College. Welcome, Professor Calloway. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to be discussing your new newest uh, book, The Indian World of George Washington, um, the first president, the first Americans, and the birth of the nation. So, and just dive right into the questions here. What prompted you to study the Indian world of George Washington, and why the focus on land?
0: Yes, I think for uh, someone who's uh, written and researched and taught about Native American history for forever, uh, the question sometimes is why do a book on a dead white guy, as uh, George Washington is perhaps the, the deadest white guy we can think of. Um, and I, and it, it is a conscious choice, and I, I think of it as a, a, a strategic uh, book, because I wanted to use George Washington as a vehicle. <clears throat> In my teaching and my research and my writing, uh, along with many other people, uh, we've argued for years, that Indian history is fundamental to understanding American history. It's not just about adding another chapter or adding a another, uh, you know, having somebody else's voices heard, although that's important. It's also recognizing that American history would not have happened as it did, as it did, unfolded in the way that it did in important places and at important junctures without the presence and the power of Native Americans, particularly in the early history of of the nation. And that's been an uphill struggle. So my thinking was that George Washington, the most famous, perhaps the most famous American, certainly the most iconic figure in the creation of the nation, um, if I could show how Native Americans, (coughs) their power, their presence, their land, shaped the life of the first president, that would demonstrate their role in shaping American history, uh, particularly in that early and sort of embryonic stage. Um, And the the focus on land is, is essential because I suppose the bottom line to understanding this approach or accepting this argument is that The United States is fundamentally a nation built on Indian land. In 1492, the continent was all indigenous land. Now it's not. And George, I'm not, um, putting these words into George Washington's mouth. George Washington understood that. He understood that the, uh, that Indian land, Western land, was the key to his own personal fortune, but that it was also the key to the growth and expansion of the nation and, in some ways, um, to the very survival of the, of the nation. Before I started off on this project, I, I read a lot of biographies of George Washington, not all of them by any means. Um, but one of the things that I, I noticed particularly in a lot of the older biographies, very little mention of Indians. Mention of Indians when George Washington encountered them in the early years of the seven years of French and Indian War. Uh, Mention of uh, John Sullivan's expedition into Iroquois country during the American Revolution. Not much else, but lots of talk about Lamb. And it struck me that every time... Land was mentioned. If you added Indian land before before that, or substituted uh, Indian land for Western land, huge part of Washington's life is is all about that. Um, and I think that's not a, a, a sort of revisionist view. I think of, of American history, but rather an acknowledgement of a fundamental fact uh, of of. of how this nation came into being. Washington understood that, and I think uh, we should understand that.
1: Your cover features a striking uh, composite dual portrait of uh, a young George Washington and corn planter. Can you uh, comment further on uh, both the cover and your reasons for uh, selecting said cover? Yeah, well, the cover is the the design
0: team at, at Oxford University Press, and I think they did a a super job it wasn't the first attempt uh, there were a couple of uh trials and errors that didn't quite work out and at one point my daughter who was an artist got involved but this is <clears throat> I, I like the cover because one of the things that i felt was important was there are so many books on washington and there are so many striking portraits of washington and <clears throat> this needed to compete I've always thought of this had to be a book that was a substantial book that could muscle its way into this impressive and formidable literature on George Washington. Um, And what I like about it is how they've taken that portrait of a, a young George Washington, as far as we know, it's the first portrait of him where he chose to be painted Wearing his uh, militia uniform for the from the French from his time on the Ohio frontier in the French and Indian War, um, and as my daughter says, it looks like he's giving Cornplanter the side eye, um, because I wanted this not to be not to be a book George Washington and American Indians in which it's really about George Washington and his policies, but rather a reconstruction of a world that George Washington and other people at his time inhabited, which was a, a world with a, in many places, an omnipresent Indian presence. And Corn is one of many native leaders whom Washington meets and deals with. Um, and so... Placing them together as, as, as the designers did, I, I think, is appropriate. Um, they, they should be equal players in this. Plus, there's that just uh, very nice <clears throat> blending of the deep reds in the portraits uh, uh, that, that help to give it give
1: it a, a little bit of impact. It's a great cover. Uh, so, for a more specific question, in 1748, George Washington's, and you write. A journal of a trip to the Blue Ridge Mountains and beyond to the Shenandoah records his first experience roughing it on the frontier. He complained about the dirt and discomfort he had to endure and marks the beginning of a lifelong obsession with Western land. He also met his first wild Indians. And then you further contend that Washington ultimately conducted 45 surveys west of the Blue Ridge. How did this first trip west of the Blue Ridge and his early role as a surveyor ignite an obsession with Western land? So Virginia, in the early
0: part of the 18th century, uh, for much of the 18th century, I suppose, is actually at the forefront of colonial expansion westward across the Blue Ridge Mountains and then across the Appalachian. And actually, if you look at a map of Virginia <clears throat> at that time and, and, um, and see the, uh, the claims to Western lands that Virginia had, you can understand this. Um, Virginia was looking to the Ohio country and beyond. Um, and so in Virginians' colonial society, um, surveying was an important and lucrative position. Um, if you were not an elite, an elite landowner um, acquiring huge tract of land, you can make uh, a good living and acquire land yourself by working as a, a surveyor. So this, as a, as a teenager, Washington gets his first taste of this. And yes, this is the first time he meets a group of so-called wild Indians. He talks about them doing a war dance and, and so on. He's not particularly interested in them, but what he is interested in is is the land and He learns the trade he doesn't spend a huge amount of time doing it. he gets his first um acquires his first real estate if you like, makes some money. but what he does is um he learns how to look at land with a surveyor's eye, I think. And what he notes about the land in his his subsequent travels um, reflects that, and also in his subsequent writings about land, particularly the land that he's trying to get or has acquired for himself. One of the terms that he uses repeatedly is the cream of the country. So he can be traveling through the Ohio country um, on the banks of the of the Ohio River passing what he must have seen was Indian mounds created by earlier Native American civilizations. He doesn't really say anything much about those. What he notes is meadows, fertile land, riverfront land, because this is the land that he recognizes represents an investment on considerable future, uh, to come. Now, contemporaries and some of, uh, as people have, um, talked about this have acknowledged that Washington was a, an accomplished speculator, even at a time when the, you know, which is marked by land speculation. Um, if Virginia is at the forefront of expanding onto western land george washington's on the forefront of virginia's expansion he and people like uh john walker but what he, what that reflects is not only washington's preoccupation if you like obsession with getting land this is business as usual in early america because land is the key to wealth land is the key to Progress, as they would see it, and for someone like Washington, land is the key to fortune and ultimately uh, a rising status. Um, and that, I think, is a, an important story of early America. It's a, it it is a story that involves <clears throat> converting Native American homelands into American real estate and the people who are involved in that, they're often networked together. Um, those are the people who position themselves to, um, to do well in that process.
1: You also argue that a native American man um, in 18, in the early uh, 1750s, Tana Grison, um had encouraged Washington in the early 1750s to fight the French and had encouraged the Shawnees and Delawares to assist him. In the seventeen fifty four capitulation at Fort Necessity, it was a blow to Tanagrisson's standing and to Iroquois authority over the Ohio Indians. For our listeners, can you briefly recount the events that culminated in this battle of Fort Necessity, as well as a brief depiction of description of and depiction of uh who this Native American man was, Tanagrisson, um as well as the immediate aftermath that ultimately uh, precipitated the Seven Years' War.
0: Yes. uh, In a lot of earlier biographies of of George Washington, these events, and particularly the the skirmish in which George Washington and a company of Virginia militia and a handful of Indians um, fight the French and De- defeat a contingent of French, Frenchmen led by Ensign, um, de Jumonville. That is sometimes characterized as Washington displaying those remarkable talents of leadership that are going to mark him for greatest in, 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 subsequent years. Um, and sort of cards on the table here as I've read through these uh, documents and tried to reconstruct that sequence of events in my own mind to my own satisfaction i I fail to see that um, i I see washington's talent for leadership elsewhere other places later not there. Um, I see a young man out of his depth uh, and actually someone who's being manipulated by uh, tanar George Washington first met tanar on a diplomatic mission to the Ohio country for the governor of Virginia. He was sent to ask the French if they would kindly withdraw from the Ohio country because the French were actually advancing, uh, installing garrisons, building forts, etc. The French refused, and Washington was then sent back with... Uh, a force of colonial militia because the Virginians were trying to take control of the forks of the Ohio, which, of course, was the key to um, that area of, of the world and keep the continent. Tanarsan was also called the half-king, and that was a title or a position rather than a name. A half-king was appointed by Onondaga, which was the central council fire of the League of the Six Nations, that's the Mohawks, Oneidas, Onondagas, Cayugas, Senecas, Tuscaroras, who on the basis of earlier military activity in the previous century claimed an influence, if not dominion, over the Ohio country and appointed a half-king almost as an ambassador or in a a British medieval context, perhaps a martial lord, to oversee and represent their interests in that country. The half king also, of course, had to serve as a conduit representing Ohio Indians in their relations with Onondaga. And as you can imagine, that was a position of some influence and, and power. But it was also a precarious position and becoming increasingly precarious in this time period because Shawnees and Delaware's and other Ohio peoples were kind of flexing their muscles a little bit and saying, we're gonna, we're gonna de- move away from this. We're gonna cast off that, uh, <clears throat> Iroquois, uh, claims to, to dominance. We're gonna, if you like, declare our independence. So that's undermining that position. And then, of course, when the French come, that threatens the, intermediary role that uh, Tanaris and the half king can play between the French and the English, between the tribes and Onondaga. Uh, So when the French invade Ohio country, Tanaris goes to the French and gives them a good telling off and says, if you don't cease and desist, then I will come with Ohio Indians at my back and we will take care of you and the french basically call his bluff and it actually is bluff because the shawnees and the uh, delawares and the other ohio indians are not convinced that they want to expel the french um because they have their own problems with, with the british and they are also the people who if a shooting war begins recognize that they will be stand to be caught in the in the crossfire so The French didn't withdraw and the Ohio Indians didn't rally around uh, Tanarison. So, at the very least, to save face, but also to kind of reassert his position, Tanarison, it's in Tanarison's interest to um, foment conflict between the English in the form of Virginia and the French. So as Washington is coming with his force, Tenorison keeps telling him, so the French are on the move, there's a French uh, force out, and they're coming this way, Uh, they're heading to attack you. Washington and Tenorison team up, they go in search of the French, and they essentially seem to have ambushed the French um, at a place that's now called Jumonville uh, Glen. Washington, in his accounts of that, skirmish glosses over it very quickly, which is not like Washington. Historians who've dug deeper into this and gotten other sources get a a different picture, and that is that the Virginians opened fire on the French. The French seem to have been on a diplomatic mission doing what Washington had tried to do earlier, that is asking the English to withdraw. And as the French break and run, they, they fall to Indian tomahawks. And Tenarrison kills Jumonville quite brutally and graphically. Uh, and, it's, I mean, it's quite a grisly episode and interested readers can follow up. Um, but And then immediately sends wampum belts and a hatchet out to say that we're, we're at war with the French. I see Washington in that realizing that things have spir- spiraled out of control because the person counting the shots calling the shots is not George Washington it's Tanarison, and <clears> tonarson <throat> um i think maneuvers washington into this what i think is a debacle washington is subsequently forced to um retreat because a French army is coming to avenge this. And he builds this little palisade, not much more, at a place called Fort Necessity, where he's attacked by the French and their Indian allies. Uh, It's an untenable situation. He's forced to surrender. And when he surrenders, unwittingly, he says, he signs terms of surrender that acknowledge that he assassinated, murdered uh, Jumonville. It's a huge propaganda tool uh for the for the French. And um it has reverberations not only through America but across the Atlantic where British ministers say this this was a this was a disaster. Um and I think that's a good example of what I'm trying to do in this book and what I'm what a lot of my colleagues in America in Native American history are trying to do. Here's an a series of events that if you just If you uh, relate them or narrate them with no Indians present, it actually doesn't add up. But if you inject Native Americans back into the story and get to the extent that you can their versions of it or the French versions of it to complement and flesh out what we get in in the English sources, you get a much fuller understanding. And I think that's Kind of what I'm trying to do in this book. Not sure that Washington was a, you know, a bad guy or a fool or any of those kinds of things. But as in so much of American history, there are points at which, if Indians are not in the narrative, then the narrative actually doesn't make much sense.
1: On that note, in this historiography. It is often said that the disaster at the Monogalia, um, which uh, was during the Seven Years' War, convinced Americans in general, and Washington in particular, to break with conventional British tactics and employ their own American way of war. Washington subsequently trained his men in Indian ways of warfare. However, it took time to retrain and re-equip troops, and even as George, even as Washington came to recognize the effectiveness of the Indians' tactics, he despaired of being able to match them. Can you elaborate on this disaster as well as the ensuing training and despair? In the wake of the surrender at Fort Necessity, the British
0: dispatched to North America, the biggest army it has ever it has sent, to kind of get the job done. Washington had failed. The British had to take control of the forks of the Ohio to stem the French advance. The army was led by General Edward Braddock. uh, And the idea was that he would lead this army blaze a trail across the Appalachians to forks of the Ohio. um, And it would be an irresistible force that would simply sweep the French aside. In the event, what it does is demonstrate the limits of empire in Indian country, because Braddock's army achieves a tremendous feat in building or hacking a road through the, the forests and mountains to reach uh, virtually within grasping dis- distance of Fort Duquesne at the um, forks of the Ohio, and it is then a tank attacked. It's not really a planned ambush. It's almost more of a collision by a force of Native Americans and some French. French forts in the West depended for their defense not upon um, gunpowder and palisades, but upon the Indian allies that they, that existed around the fort. Without Indian allies, the forts were indefensible, um, and. When those two forces collide, the Indians go to fighting as they've been trained to do. They go to the trees, they lay down barrage of fire um, and render themselves essentially invisible to the British, who respond as they've been trained to stand in ranks and fire, which means, of course, that this battle rapidly becomes a one-sided event. Uh, and literally a, a killing field uh, in which the the, the redcoats are, are mowed down, and eventually, eventually, after about three hours of this discipline unravels and the the army retreats and it, it uh, degenerates into a rout. Uh, and General Braddock is killed. Washington, by all accounts, not just his own accounts, but by all accounts, demonstrates. Uh, Commendable courage. He's one of the few officers who's not wounded. He has bullets in his coat, horses shot under him, uh, that kind of thing. Um, But this is something that adds to his reputation and perhaps really enhances his reputation. So, up until this point, his record in Indian country is uh, a shady encounter at Jumonville, a debacle at Fort Necessity, and a massive. Of being present at a massive defeat. But the courage that he shows uh, here is uh, kind of elevates him. Now, according to the, the story that's often told, is that having seen the British Redcoats, a conventional army, out of its depth, floundering and, 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 and destroyed by Indians waging guerrilla warfare. Washington and other Americans learn that lesson and say later on, okay, so this is how we will defeat the British, and that they will then do that in uh, the revolution. Because in the revolution, the mythology has embattled American farmers shooting from behind walls and trees and kind of robotic redcoats uh, trying to fight in ranks. In reality, the British... Adopted their tactics during the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' War, uh, developing far more light interest in infantry, uh, companies of rangers fighting guerrilla warfare, that kind of thing. Uh, And George Washington, in the Revolution, tried to emulate the British in creating a conventional army. In fighting the British, Washington recognized that he needed a... A British style army. And what he complains about or points to in his accounts of Braddock's defeat is not so much the tactics that the British use, but the breakdown of discipline. And he continues in the revolution to try and instill that kind of discipline, uh, in his, in his fighting. It's a little different fighting Indians. And Washington, in the wake of Braddock's defeat, is uh, tasked with defending the Western frontier of Virginia with Virginia militia. He tries to organize and discipline these militia, but he also recognizes that they are totally inadequate for fighting Indians. That basically, he says, in order to fight Indians, what you need is Indians. You need Indian allies. Um, So... I guess what I put it in a nutshell, I'd say when it comes to the revolution, Washington wants a conventional farm army to defeat a conventional army, but he will also like the British, employ guerrilla tactics and guerrilla forces to supplement that conventional army. But then there's a different way of fighting Indians. Right? And we can talk about more about that in in a moment.
1: So during the Seven Years' War, uh you aver that Washington simultaneously and this is a, a offshoot question, recognized and resented his dependence on Indian allies, unable to give them what they had been promised, he feared losing them altogether. Can you elucidate the consequences of this uh uh dual recognition and resentment? Yes, um So every
0: American war, every so-called Indian war, has Indians fighting on both sides because Indian people did not respond as a race to white invasion. They responded as individual nations with their own foreign policies. So in this war, Washington and his uh, Virginian troops on the frontier are confronting Shawnee and Delaware uh, raids from the Ohio country and they're unable to handle it. And what Virginia does and what the British do is solicit the assistance of Indian allies from the south uh, particularly Cherokees and those Cherokees come north to help the Virginians help Britain in fighting the Shawnees and Delawares. Um, these are not racial traders. They're doing what makes sense to them. And they have often their own antagonisms with Northern Indians. Washington knows that he needs them, but it's also an exercise in frustration And uh, on both sides. Washington complains that the Indians are mercenary. They won't do what he wants them to do. You have to keep giving them gifts, right? At the same time, he sees no irony in the fact that he's complaining to the governor of Virginia that he and his men, and him and he in particular, are not paid enough for their services, right? But Indian people have come north <coughs> under contract in a sense that they've been asked by the British to send their warriors to fight alongside the British. And in return, they expect that their women and children will be looked after when they're away and that they will receive the supplies that they need, food, guns, ammunition, etc. Uh, it's up there often just called gifts. And giving gifts in Native American diplomacy is fundamental. It's not payment, it's not just payment. They're not mercenary. Giving and receiving gifts cements an alliance. Giving gifts shows that you are committed to this alliance. Receiving gifts um, helps establish. Uh, an obligation Um, so giving and receiving gifts is something that allies do penny pinching British administrators or people who regard this as as just payment uh, are going to undermine that relationship so the Cherokees find this frustrating because what they see is arrogant British who expect them to obey their commands. Cherokees don't take commands from the British. The way to get Cherokees to do what you want is to give gifts because that shows that you are committed to this alliance with them and that reinforces the agreement. To Washington and and fellow officers, this seems like you can't get Cherokees to do anything without paying them. And so even though they are allies fighting in uh a common cause or at least fighting parallel wars, this um, cultural gulf that exists between them is highlighted and it generates problems that um, will actually lead to conflict between the British and the Cherokees in the so-called Cherokee War in 1759 uh, 61. But even the French, who were, were famous for their ability to cultivate and maintain Indian alliances, very often French officers complained about how they complained about their Indian allies because they fought wars differently. They they marched to their own tune, as it were, but they also recognized how dependent they were on Indian allies. As one French officer said. We can do. We cannot do without Indians in this country any more than an army could do without cavalry. And Europeans um, often resented that dependence. And I think some of that is is apparent in in Washington's reactions too.
1: So let's talk. Let's discuss a little bit of uh, the years leading up to the Revolutionary War, the American Revolution, as well as the war itself, uh, beginning in seventeen seventy one. For example, John Murray, the Earl of Dunmore, instead of enforcing the Crown's restrictions on Western settlement, which refers to the 1763 Proclamation, etc., uh, Dunmore befriended men like Thomas Walker and our George Washington, who claimed and coveted tens of thousands of acres beyond the Appalachians and were willing to share part of their claims in appreciation. How, did, how did, and why did this friendship result? In Dunmore's 1775 plans to annul the land patents Washington had received, a decision that would strip Washington of 23,000 acres. And what was Washington's reaction to that?
0: Yeah, I think these years, the the dozen or so years before the American Revolution, are crucial to understand, obviously crucial to understanding the American Revolution. But again, I think there's an important Native American component or thread that needs to go in there. So at the end of the Seven Years' War, the British are victorious. The French are kicked out. The British have promised the Indians that if they uh, abandoned the French and did not resist um, British invasion into their lands, that their lands would be uh, secure. Um, At the end of that war, the British forget those pledges. They put garrisons in Indian country. Uh, broke at the end of the most expensive war, the British fought um, they cut back on supplies and gifts to Indians so given what we I was talking about in just, just uh, moments earlier, if giving gifts is a symbol and a sign of friendship and alliance, withholding gifts, cutting off trade, cutting down uh sales of ammunition is a gesture of hostility, particularly at a time when Redcoat garrisons are, are, are taking over French forts. It produces a so-called Indian rebellion. I prefer to call it the first American war of Indian independence. It's often called Pontiac's War, where Indian peoples in the Ohio Valley and Great Lakes take on the British Empire and basically um, knock it back on its heels. To avoid that happening again, the British do a couple of things. First of all, they say, well, We're going to have to keep an army in North America. Keeping 10,000 British soldiers in North America is an expensive proposition. Britain is broke. How are you going to pay for it? Some bright spark has the bright idea of, well, let's tax the colonists just to do that and to help administer this, this empire. And we all know how that played out because that's a fundamental part of the standard interpretation of the origins of the American Revolution. The other thing that they do and this is a piece that's not given so much attention, in 1763, the British say, we've got to avoid these recurrent frontier conflicts. And the way to do that is to regulate the frontier and stop British people, white people, if you like, trespassing on the Indian lands. So in 1763, the British government issues a proclamation. It's called the Royal Proclamation, George III signs it, which essentially says, east of the Appalachian Mountains, that's British territory west of the Appalachian Mountains, that's British Territory too, but it's an Indian reserve. And people don't go there without proper authority, and nobody buys land there except the crown to cut down individuals, land companies, etc., cheating Indians out out of their land. Fair enough, that seems like a good idea. The problem is the people like George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, the Lee family in Virginia most of the elite families of Virginia and other colonies, have, for years, been speculating in Western land. You get hold of land beyond the Appalachians, you get a claim to it in anticipation that once the French are defeated, then the West will be open to settlement. Colonists will swarm across the Appalachian Mountains, eager to buy or rent land, and you will, you will just make a killing. The French are defeated. The way west is open, and then the British slam the door. And that's incredibly frustrating for people like Washington who've been waiting for this day. Immediately, they are lobbying to get the proclamation line moved. Uh, Washington basically conspires with his land agent, Says, "Well, let's just ignore it. They're going it's it's gonna fall away." Uh, so, in a sense, they continue to speculate and invest in Indian land. When Governor uh, Dunmore, John Murray, Earl of Dunmore, arrives, these are his people, right? And so he immediately um, comes on board uh, with what they're doing and in anticipation of of getting land. And in fact, he is, many historians hold him responsible for fomenting a war with the Shawnees. It's called Dunmore's War, in which he defeats the Shawnees, or the Virginians defeat the Shawnees, and acquire a huge amount of of land as a result of that. But Britain is tightening its restraints, And the government determines that the claims of people like George Washington to Indian land under an earlier proclamation by the governor of Virginia in 1754 and under the Royal Proclamation, which actually um, allotted land bounties to regular officers in the British Army. The government now says this doesn't apply the, the, the earlier proclamation didn't apply to officers like Washington. It applied to rank-and-file soldiers. And the 1763 proclamation did not apply to colonial militia, only to, to regular officers. And as the government, this is a time, of course, when the British government is, is tightening its control over the, the colony. Uh, when it comes to that point, Governor Dunmore has to decide which way is he going to go and he sides with the British government. So he then is the person who's, I mean, in some ways, he's the the, the messenger who says this is not gonna happen. And that means that, um, as in the quotation that you read, that Washington stands to be out 23,000 acres. And I'm not the first person to have pointed out that it's, it's this that really alienates Washington from the British Empire, which he had fought for and served in the Seven Years' War. Now it seems that the British Empire has replaced the French Empire as the obstacle to him being able to realize his, his Western land ambitions. Um, and so now he seriously considers separation from that empire. So, The the war of independence is a war of independence, but part of that independence is is the freedom to speculate in and make money from Indian land. Um, The war of independence is also a war about Indian land and who has access to Indian land, which means that for Indian people, it's what the, the American Revolution is also a war about land, their land, and it's also, for them, a war of independence, their independence from Americans who uh, seem intent on acquiring that land at, at all costs.
1: In contrast to the British and Indian tax on American settlements that Washington denounced during the Revolutionary War, how did he conceive of Sullivan's campaign, which you uh, alluded to earlier, Sullivan's campaign, um, <clears throat> during the war, including the rape and murder of a female native elder in the French Catherine's town.
0: So when the revolution breaks out, Indian people face difficult choices. Most of them, for for as long as they can, want to remain neutral. They regard this as, if you like, a domestic fight between Englishmen. But neutrality for Indian people is 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 rarely an option. They're going to get caught up on it because uh, contending parties regard them as hostile, if, if, if not allied. Most finish up siding with the British, who have at least demonstrated some attempt to protect their land, and against the Americans, who seem hell-bent on, on getting their land. And the majority of the Iroquois Confederacy, not all, side with the British, launch attacks on the American Frontier. And this is brutal guerrilla warfare. It's the kind of warfare that Thomas Jefferson refers to in the Declaration of Independence, and that's how it's always characterized. And Washington, to stem those attacks, dispatches American armies into Iroquois country and appoints General John Sullivan to lead this ex- expedition. And what he adopts is not a new strategy, it's a standard strategy. Colonial powers fighting Indian people in the eastern woodlands achieved success not by marching armies into Indian country and meeting Indians in open battle, as Braddock's defeat demonstrated, they achieved success by marching into Indian country and targeted, targeting Indian villages and Indian cornfields. The French did this, the British did this in the Cherokee War, Washington does this in the Revolution. You send your armies into Indian country, find the villages, destroy the villages, find the cornfields and the crops and the orchards and destroy those. Uh, this will, <clears throat> it's it's total warfare, Uh, visited in Indian country. And the idea is this will not only stem the attacks at source, but also um, essentially bring scorched earth policy to Iroquois country. Sullivan's campaign is Washington's campaign. He conceives it, he plans it, he's meticulous in his attention to detail, and he devotes a large part of the Continental Army uh, to carrying this, this out. And it makes it quite clear to Sullivan what nothing less than the total destruction of Iroquois country is acceptable. Don't talk peace with them until you've destroyed their towns and villages. And Sullivan does as he's ordered. He comes back and reports that he's destroyed 40 Iroquois towns and 160,000 bushels of corn. The armies spend days in Indian towns, Destroying cornfields, destroying stores of corn, cutting down orchards, etc. Sullivan's officers recognize that this is a historic event, and a lot of them keep journals and accounts of that. Um, and they record this cornucopia that they're seeing, which means that this country becomes uh, very desirable after the American Revolution to American settlers. Um, but they also some of them in Acknowledge instances of, of a brutality and a, atrocity. Uh, one of which is that they um, they, they, com- they found a native woman, an elder native woman, whom, whom they uh, um, who they allowed to live. Right, they don't kill her. But <clears throat> the officer also mentions that there was a younger woman with her, and that when the army is returning. Um, back at the end of the expedition and they go through um, the village they find the naked body of this young woman uh, who um, the implication is clearly had had been raped and and killed Um, so this and of course this was something that Washington had no uh, expectation or vision of Washington was about he wanted to destroy Iroquois towns and Iroquois uh, crops and destroy their ability to wage war and to create a refugee problem for the British, which they did, because Iroquois people fleeing their homes went to the British at Fort Niagara, uh, and between three and 5,000 Native people were huddled around Fort Niagara in the winter of 1779, which is one of the coldest winters on, on record. So it was the younger woman that was actually killed? It was the younger woman that was actually killed. And, of course, you could say, what would you expect? Because this kind of warfare actually targets the female domain. Right? In eastern woodland societies, men kind of operate outside the village. They, they do the hunting. They do the warfare. They conduct the diplomacy. That tends to go on outside. And, and in that sense, to put it simply, men take life. Women give life and cultivate. They give birth, they plant the crops, they raise the crops. So when you're sending armies to target Indian villages and cornfields, that's the domain of women. And the, the intention may not be to inflict casualties and um, for this kind of thing to happen, but the chances are that it will.
1: So the following is a a two-part question about the the Revolutionary War. First, how and why did the story of the capture and torture of William Crawford, Washington's friend, help to imprint Thomas Jefferson's reference to merciless savages in the national memory for years to come? And then second, uh, can you elaborate on your argument that while Washington decried the violence against Native peoples, he knew that military strikes against the Indians were necessary to establish a, a claim to the Western lands he had long coveted for himself and now coveted for the new nation.
0: Yes. Yeah, so to start with William Crawford, William Crawford was a business associate of Washington. When Washington wrote, someone said, let's ignore the 1763 proclamation, it's William Crawford. He says, see if you can get me some land surreptitiously. So that when this proclamation line fails or is removed, we'll be in possession of the lands that are the cream of the country. So this is Washington's friend and, and business associate. He is, <clears throat> um, he leads an expedition into northwestern Ohio in Indian country during the revolution. His force is attacked and defeated, routed. A number of people are taken captive and marked for death, marked for torture. One of those is William Crawford, and the torture that he he endures is grisly and horrible, and it's reported by a couple of captives who escape, make it back to American settlements. And it makes its way into the literature of the Revolution and Indian Wars. And basically it reaffirms what Jefferson had said in the American Declaration of Independence. Indian warriors are savages they, they, they commit these atrocities. It becomes used with that account by Jefferson as justification for dispelling and dispossess, dispossessing Indians after the revolution. Where will Indians be in, America, in the New American Republic? What will their place be? Well, they should have no place, because while the Americans were fighting for freedom at the moment of their birth, Indians were not only fighting for the king, but doing this horrible kind of stuff. Right? They were savages. The broader context for this is that the Delawares um, had tried to remain neutral for as much of the revolution as they could, Some Delawares actually refused to go to war, even though most Delawares tended to gravitate toward the British eventually. Delawares who had converted to the Moravian faith and lived in their own villages were Christians and they were pacifists, so they could have no part of the war. And what had happened was that a force of Pennsylvania militia Going into Indian country to retaliate for Delaware raids basically took their vengeance instead on a village of Christian Delaware pacifists at a place called Nardenhut, and it it means Tents of Grace. They rounded up the Indians, divided them into three groups, men, women, and children and then essentially bludgeoned to death with wooden mallets 96 men, women, and children. That obviously had huge repercussions in Indian country, as George Washington knew it would. He sent instructions to his commanders in the West saying basically, tell your soldiers not to allow themselves to be taken captive because they will be subject to this horrendous retaliation for this. So he knew what was going to happen. William Crawford was not at the Narden Hutton massacre, but he then proceeds to lead another expedition into Indian country, which encounters not pacifist Christian Indians, but resistant Indians who uh, defeat him and, and torture him. This is brutal, uh, and graphically described, but it's, re- it's culturally required. Those Delaware warriors who carried out that torture did so. It, uh, it was imperative that they did so. They were required to avenge their clan relatives who died at American hands. The victim of their vengeance does not have to be the actual perpetrator of the of the of the original uh, crime. Right? So even though this this torture was brutal in its elements, it was not thoughtful. It thoughtless. It was ritually carried out in which one of the Delaware <coughs> chiefs, a guy by the name of Hopakan or Captain Pipe, who actually four or five years later, had signed the Treaty of Fort Pitt with the Americans, with William Crawford present, so these guys knew each other, um, delivered a speech explaining what what was going on. Um, So Indian people actually tell the British at the end of the American Revolution, the Americans tell lies about us in their newspapers, and we don't have newspapers, but if we did, and could give our account of the atrocities and brutalities that had been visited upon us, people would have a very different opinion about which of us were the, was the Christian part, which of which of us were the Christians. Um those events take place in the early 1780s, 1781, 1782. The war in the West continues long after. General Cornwallis has surrendered at Yorktown, which essentially is, secures American independence. And one of the reasons for that is that the Americans need to establish a claim to Western land. We're used to looking at textbooks that simply show the United States as it existed after independence, right? that at the Treaty of Paris in 1783 the british recognized independent american independence and hand over all the territory south of <coughs> canada and the great lakes west uh, east of the mississippi and north of florida um it was not always a guarantee that that was going to happen because remember the british had established a prop a, a barrier at, at, at the appalachian mountains in 1774 um the British extended the boundaries of Quebec southwards to the Ohio River and put that disputed Ohio country as part of the uh, province of Quebec. There were <clears throat> movements among European powers during the revolution to negotiate a peace and basically they argued that the peace would entail American e- uh, independence and the ter- territorial boundaries would be decided by who was in possession of what territory at the time. Right? The Americans and George Washington knew this. Needed to establish claims to western land. Right? They needed to be able to um, have a, a justifiable claim to Iroquois country, to the to the rich Ohio country. If you didn't have that, then a lot of those land claims would be lost. But also, Washington recognized that an independent new nation, a collection of states hemmed in east of the Appalachian Mountains, would be stifled. It needed to be able to grow. And it was if it was going to grow, it was going to grow to the west, onto Western land. And at the end of the war, of course, that was really the only uh resource that the United States had. Washington knew that and he in that sense had a already had a vision for How things must happen after
1: independence. In the early Republic uh, period, you hold that for Secretary of War Henry Knox and the first federal president, George Washington, saving Indian people from destruction meant transforming Indian lives. Washington recommended what he termed rational experiments for imparting the blessings of civilization and believed, or at least hoped, that the United States would not need to fight Indians if it traded with them. The twin instruments for carrying out this policy were Indian agents and government trading posts. What were these rational experiments in social engineering? What were the role of agents and trading posts? In addition, how did, how did Scottish Enlightenment views inform Washington's views from intensive agriculture to prescribed gender roles?
0: Yes. Um, so an early review of, of of this book, it's actually in the New York Review books, says, you know, Calloway seems kind of ambivalent about Washington. Um, you bet. Um, I'm deeply ambivalent about him. And it's wrapped up in his Indian policy. Because um, Washington is just not, is not just a, a sort of bet for American imperialism and expansion and Indian killing. Um, But as first president, he has the opportunity and the responsibility to establish an Indian policy for the new nation. Well, there are certain givens, and the first given is that the United States will take Indian land. This is not just Washington talking. This is laid out in the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which is a blueprint for how the United States will grow. First, by establishing territories then by those territories becoming states. But that expansion will be accompanied by just dealings with Indians. There's a challenge, right? So number one priority is acquiring land. But do it if possible, and Washington and Knox spend a lot of time and energy and ink on this question by dealing honorably with Indian people because we want the new nation to look good at the, to the rest of the world, and we also, this is who we are. We need to establish ourselves as a nation of, of justice. How do you do that? Well, if you're going to have get Indian land, you do it by offering Indians a fair price, doing what the British had done and make treaties with Indians so that this can be done, this transfer of Indian land can be done properly. The problem is what if the Indians refuse then, given your priority, which is non-negotiable, you have to have their land then well, you have to go to war to them for them, or, as Washington said, the term he used was to extirpate them to root them out or completely destroy them, and so there are the, those are the two elements of washington's indian policy and of american indian policy it's it's this contradiction and it's one that perhaps never reconciled was there an alternative well yes there was you could civilize indian people now scottish enlightenment thinking which was prevalent in the colonies at the time you know jefferson was tutored by a a scottish teacher etc held that Humanity, peoples existed on different scales and at different stages. But it, it was a. These stages reflected human development. People were not frozen at one stage because of their race. These are later ideas that come into American thinking. If Indian people are backward, inferior, and primitive, as they are, people argue at the time, it's because they haven't yet at the opportunities that english people or americans have had but given those opportunities christianity education if you like civilization they can be raised up so to do justice to indian people you can do that justice by giving them civilization by helping them to be to move up this this scale of human development the good thing about that is that for a 19th, early 19th century American civilization fundamentally means agriculture. Right? Sedentary societies practicing agriculture. Hunting societies are savage, backward, primitive. So in order for Indians to become civilized, they must stop hunting and become farmers. That means they need a lot less land, because instead of ranging over hundreds of square miles hunting, they can now derive a living from the soil by practicing American-style plow agriculture. So they've now got lots of land they don't need, and that land is also becoming less valuable to them because the encroachment of American settlers is diminishing the game. So this works for everybody. Now, the question, of course, is, well, wait a minute. When Sullivan's army went through Iroquois country, it spent all that time burning Iroquois cornfields. The British burnt Cherokee cornfields. These people, of course, were already practicing agriculture. The problem from the American perspective is that the wrong people are growing the crops. Indian women grew the crops. For American civilization to take hold, Indian men have to become the farmers um, and so Washington's program of civilization is a a program let's see he seems as a, as a program of salvation. This will save Indian people because unless they give up their hunting way of life and become farmers they're they're doomed to extinction, and we need to promote this. And you do that by sending agents to Indian country, to Indian communities to try and instill these changes, and also by establishing government trading posts where Indian people will come and get the things that they need to help um advance this this new program. Interestingly, in seventeen ninety, Congress passes in Washington Sport thing called the Indian Trade and Intercourse Act, yes. which says nobody trades in Indian country without a license, government license, and nobody you. it's illegal to buy and sell Indian land without congressional approval. In many ways, this is like a mirror, uh, a carbon copy of what the Royal Proclamation of 1763 had said, which Washington had, had, had been furious about and railed about. Now he and his government are doing much the same thing because they find themselves confronted with much the same problems that the British had in 1763. How do you, how do you do this? How do you, you know that white settlement is going to increase and expand onto Indian land. You need to try and regulate and restrain that to avoid recurrent Native American warfares. And you also try to do the right thing in Dealing with Indian people. And of course people like Washington and Knox and Jefferson had very clear ideas about what what was right for Indian people. Indian people did not always share that view.
1: How do you reconcile on that note the dual contentions that Washington's civilization program constituted genocide by another name? Yet Washington also saw his policies as setting Indians on the road to survival. How and why did, for example, some Seneca's hold Washington in his memory and reverence? Yeah, this
0: is this is interesting because uh, it is as I said the contradiction of United States Indian policy, not just in Washington's time, but for generations to come. For Indians to survive, they must become civilized, and so they must change forever. They must, in short, become like Americans, not just Farm like Americans, do so they need to live like Americans, act like Americans, hopefully think like Americans in other ways, other words, stop being Indians right? and this idea that the cost of Indian survival is the destruction of Indian culture um, pervades nineteenth century American Indian policies that is the um, Genesis of that phrase uh, attributed to Richard Henry Pratt and the boarding school era, uh, kill the Indian and save the man. Right? For the man, for the person to survive, the Indian must die. Um, so, there, I mean, there are various definitions of, of genocide, some very narrow, some very broad. But one includes the destruction or attempts to destroy culture. And I would not say that Washington deliberately uh, had this intention, but this is going to be the cost to Indian people of survival on Washington's terms. Um, And because ultimately Indians who survive will survive not as members of tribes because there's no place for Indian tribes in a communal way of life and communal landholding in the United States, but they will survive as individuals, hopefully um, living much like um, uh, Americans live, uh, and they will be people of Indian descent, but they won't be members of, of Indian tribes. Um, so given all of that, and given Sullivan's campaign into Iroquois country, which particularly targeted the Senecas, there's this interesting event that happens the year that Washington dies. A Seneca by the name of Handsome Lake has a vision in which he says he goes to heaven right? and he comes back with a message of revival for his people, and He says the Indian Heaven is a place where there are no white men allowed right? except George Washington, whom he saw sitting outside, right? and other S- Senecas talk about reverence for for George Washington. Uh, and John Ross, a Cherokee chief, principal chief of the Cherokees at the time of removal, names one of his sons George Washington. So there's lots of instances in which Indian people, um, toward the end of Washington's life and then especially after he dies, invoke Washington and Washington's presidency as almost like a, a golden era for them. Um, So if I'm ambivalent about Washington, so are Indian people in and shortly after his own lifetime. And part of it is they are consciously invoking the image and the memory of the first president and saying he was somebody who tried, even if he didn't succeed, who tried to give us justice. Maybe the United States should follow that example. But often, they, certainly in the case of John Ross, they are looking back uh, Washington's administration and these formative years of Indian policy from the context of a very different era. In 1830, Congress passes the Indian Removal Act. Andrew Jackson is president. And that question that Washington and Knox struggled with, what what would be the place of Indians, Indian people in this new republic, this new nation that we're building, was answered. There will be no place. Indians will be removed. They'll be relocated west of the Mississippi. From that perspective and that environment, um, it made sense, I think, for a Cherokee chief like George, John Ross, who had seen his people follow Washington's civilization program as a recipe for survival, uh, to revere this president. Um Washington had at least tried to reconcile, reconcile those those apparently irreconcilable elements of Indian policy expansion meaning taking indian land and justice to indians and of course washington failed but america has failed those that's that's the contradictions and the and the dilemmas that, that were at work here
1: Thank you, Professor Calloway. Um, I, we actually have, I have one final question. Um, what can we expect from you next that you can disclose? Uh, vacation or um, are you working on another project or anything that you would like to comment on? Yeah,
0: yeah I'm not very good at vacation. Um, <laughs> and I suspect I wouldn't be any good in retirement. Um, so I, I have a couple of things in mind. One thing that I'm intrigued in and, and I'm working on I'm beginning to gather steam on and is the experiences of Indian people in early American cities. People have written a lot about Indian delegations visiting Washington, the city Washington after 1800. And I write in, in, in this book uh, a lot about Indian people who visit Philadelphia to see the first president and have negotiations, et cetera. Um, what struck me in doing this was going back to our original question about corn planter. Right? When corn planter and a Seneca delegation come to Philadelphia to visit Washington, they have an exchange of speeches back and forth. These are prepared kind of written talks that goes on um, a couple of months at least. So they're in Philadelphia for a couple of months, and they're actually talking, doing business, if you like, for a couple of days. What are they doing the rest of the time? Uh, and so I'm in the beginning phases of a book to explore that. Um, because, and that's when the Indians are very often, if you like, off record because the official records don't account for what they're doing. And so I'm hunting through newspapers and things of that nature to see what they were doing and what they made of it all. Um, when you come to a city like Philadelphia, Um, what they do. Well, one of the things we know is that they went to the circus and they went to the theater. And we know that because newspapers would advertise that. They might advertise that there was a, a circus that night or a play at the theater that night. But not so much. But what they do advertise is they let their readers know that the Indian delegations who are in the city are going to go to the circus tonight or will attend the theater that night because that is regarded as something that the citizens of Philadelphia would want to turn out and see. Um, so it's those kinds of, of, uh, issues that I want to get at. And, and I'm thinking, I'm looking at this as this would be the Indian's urban frontier. Right. So instead of white Americans going west and um touching an Indian world which becomes their Indian frontier, these are native people traveling east and touching the if you like the western edges of an Atlantic frontier and this is their frontier, whether they're meeting white people in churches or taverns or um in the red light district of Philadelphia. Uh, they're encountering this this new world. So that's kind of what I'm thinking of
1: uh, right now. Sounds compelling. Um, I you hope you uh, think of us next time. Um, so this is uh, Ryan Tripp. We've been talking to uh, and discussing uh, Professor Calloway's uh, Indian World of George Washington. Thank you, listeners, for uh, again uh, joining us. We'll hear you and see you next time on the New Books Network Native American Studies channel. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.